0: Last week, or not last week, last time we did authors, we talked about our like own history classes. Lexi or English classes. Lexi admitted that she read every single book. I want to amend like my previous statement about how my English was horrible. I want to amend it to it was batshit crazy awful because talking to my like friend, I realized that I don't think I read a single female author in his, uh, in English like classes at all because I was going through the list and I was like no did not read that did not read that no poets my English department in high school was ninth and tenth grade was for the regent test New York regency state testing then junior senior year is broken up into four semesters and you could take four different classes unless senior year you wanted to take AP English Of course I was not ready for AP English. I was awful at English. I know I took something called like American wilderness because they said colleges want you to take an American history based English course. And I now see that it's complete. Bull caca. I didn't take Greek lit, which I am mad about, but I took ethics and those are the only two. I only remember those three classes being offered. And I'm trying to like remember any female. You didn't have
1: like a American literature course, just like American literature. Nope, that's really weird, right? That's why I wanted to mention. Like in AP, it's a batshit weirdness. In AP English, I took the literature, the AP literature. We read short stories by women. We read books by women. We read poetry by women. Were your teachers women? My teachers were women. Huh. My two that stick out
0: in my head because one it was the ethics and she wrote one of my college recs and then the second one I think was a more Shakespeare course because we did read like Macbeth and such and I have my qualms about Shakespeare. We all do. I like can't remember and maybe like I did read female authors but it's nothing that sticks out in my head. Like we didn't read Little Women. Well, we didn't. I mean, I don't think Emily. *Little
1: Women* is a common class in English. Uh, com- I don't think common *Little Women* book. is a common book in English yeah. class. But we read *Their Eyes Were Watching God* by Zora Neale Hurston. We read—I forget the name of it.
2: When um, my
1: twelfth
2: grade AP Lit class read. Frankenstein, or we were getting ready to read Frankenstein. This is like high school trauma for me, but when we were reading Frankenstein, or we were getting ready to read Frankenstein, we were talking about how Mary Shelley's mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, was noted feminist. and my AP Lit teacher who... I hope he's not listening, but I also hope he kind of is listening because he thought he was David Foster Wallace reincarnate and it was low key annoying, but he said something about her being a feminist and seeing like how people in the class would feel about that. And there were like 15 kids in this class and 14 pairs of eyes like you could hear the turn in the class to look at me because I think I've said this before that I was known as that feminist bitch in high school. So there you go. That's my high school trauma for the pro- for the pod. So we definitely read female
1: laughter. I just think
2: it's weird that you guys had like- Choice.
1: Themed... Yeah. We just Especially had- Especially in high school. English. Just... Yeah, we just had- I mean, had there was AP. honors and AP or and whatever, AP. but like mm-hmm. everyone took it and everyone read the same books. But we read a lot of short stories because like the big thing, well, we had a course called Honors Analytical and because there wasn't enough time in AP Lit to actually teach how to write well. So they added a course for juniors to take. And we read mostly short stories in those classes because it's easier to read it, to write analytically about a short story than about a book. But we read like 100 Years of Solitude, you know, go back to the last episode where I said, (laughs) that's that's my intellectual favorite.
0: Other thing that gets me is because my high school also didn't have like a course for us how to te- like write well
1: on high school base like because I feel like Apparently that's school- actually really it's very common to not have good writing foundation in high school and it was considered abnormal that there was like intense writing courses in my high school when I got to college professors were really shocked by how well I wrote and I was like what like this paper would have been a b to Mith- mrs pathassus mrs Pathasses, if you're listening which I- you probably aren't are you alive anyway thank you bye This modern world of science and invention is of particular interest to women.
2: Hello and welcome to Lady History, the good, the bad, and the ugly ladies you missed in history class. My lady for today is a poet, so the intro questions are a little bit poetry themed. So Lexi, are you a poet? I thought I was.
1: When I was like 16, I thought I was really emotional. I thought I wrote really good poetry. I published it on some website that's not Wattpad, what was like that, but I don't think exists anymore. Maybe that's a Patreon episode reciting Lexi's poems. But I also was a school champion in the Poetry Out Loud competition, which is where you read other people's poems out loud from memory.
2: In my head, your answer was if I am, I don't know it. I apologize. I can never answer what you want me to answer. (laughs) You can never answer what I want you to answer. And Haley, what's your nom de plume?
0: I'm going to read your mind and say, Sprinkle Bear McPuss in Boots. Thank you. At least someone delivers. I do what I can.
2: And I'm Alana and hope is the thing with feathers. Wow. Exquisite. Emily Dickinson Stan. Do you guys like poetry? No, I'll stand by that. I like like some
1: I'd say I'm picky and there's no modern poet that can give me any feelings
2: because there is a Marianne Moore poem that's called poetry and it begins I too dislike it also when men talk to me about poetry that makes me uncomfortable yeah Yeah, that's garbage
0: so I how did you guys learn how to read poetry because everyone has always said there's a certain way and my dyslexic brain can't that made me poetry oh
1: okay that makes sense but I don't think yeah. like you can learn to like I don't think you can learn to read it That's well I think I because thought.
2: the idea is even though like you can break up lines differently you don't pa- you don't necessarily pause at the end of a line uh, unless there's like punctuation there yeah like yeah there's like, the, the, thing with the, others, the perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all there's like no poetry there but it's four lines But like, also, there's no way to truly
1: know what the, this is the whole thing about poetry out loud. There's no way Mm -hmm. to truly know unless the author has like a published reading, like, like, you know, Maya Angelou, for example, know what they wanted it to sound like. Yeah. Maya's the only
0: poetry that I've been able to read and enjoy. I get extremely frustrated reading poetry. And I think it can be very uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah, I've been to some spoken word, like,
1: I think poetry bar is sense. far better that way.
0: Yeah, and that's definitely better. But it's still not my jam, per
1: se. Same
2: AP Lit class, we did a whole unit on spoken word poetry. That was also really annoying. <laughs> spoken word poetry
1: is more effective than written poetry because it just lends itself to that better. Like, in the way that rap is poetry, I mean, when you really break it down, like... Oh yeah, rap is poetry and most music is also poetry. And so I think it, it lends itself to performance better than to being read in your head.
2: My mother had a particular way of looking at the world. And as much as anything, I was writing about that in my earlier books, the differences between how she and I believed in different things, but also saw through these differences with a mutual heart.
1: So this is a lady I'm very excited to cover because I didn't know she existed when I was a kid. But if I had known that she existed, I would have been her biggest fan because I appreciated her work prior to knowing she existed. That makes no sense out of context, but it will make sense later. So Amy Tan was born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area. Shout out to Haley, former SF resident. Her parents were immigrants from mainland China and she had one older brother and one younger brother. And prior to meeting Amy's father, Amy's mother, Daisy, was in an abusive marriage in China. When she divorced her husband, he was granted custody of the couple's three daughters, uh, Amy's three older half-sisters. And when the Chinese Civil War occurred, Daisy was forced to flee China, and she had to leave her three children behind. When she was in high school, she lost both her brother and her father, who suffered from brain tumors. Her mother, who believed the family was cursed, took her two remaining children to live in Europe. And they settled in Switzerland where Amy completed high school and almost eloped after high school, but then didn't. Uh, Amy returned to America for college and she earned a BA in English and linguistics and a master's in linguistics. And after school, she married her boyfriend, Louis de Maté, correct me if I'm wrong. And she began to pursue a doctorate in linguistics. Later, she worked as a language specialist with children under the age of five who had developmental disabilities. And she focused on bringing multicultural children into early childhood language programs, because at the time she was working, it largely, it was a largely white industry, like there weren't a lot of people who looked like her working in the industry. So some families had hesitations about bringing their children to get this kind of care. And so she kind of opened the door for people who looked more like her to get the care that they needed. She left early childhood work to become a writer and she started publishing short stories in the mid-1980s. After gaining success sharing her short stories in magazines, she traveled to China for the first time. Her mother had been ill and she had promised her that if she got well, the two would go to China together to see Amy's three older sisters. And Amy's mom recovered from the illness and they traveled to China together. Amy felt the trip impacted her greatly, connecting her to her heritage and rebuilding the torn relationship she had with her mother. The ups and downs of her relationship with her mother shaped a lot of her writing and like how she wrote. And after her trip to China, she returned to America to find that she'd been offered a book deal. The book that came out of this project was her most notable and most famous work, The Joy Luck Club. And the book was a hit. It spent 40 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list and is still considered a you know, well-regarded book today. It was made into a movie with Amy serving as the screenwriter and producer on the project. And you know a movie based on a book is going to be good when the writer is involved. When the writer is not involved, it's probably not going to be good. But because she was a screenwriter and producer, you know, that's why it was good. Every novel Amy published after the Joy Luck Club was featured on the bestsellers list. She also authored two children's books. And one of those books, Sagwa, the Chinese Siamese Cat, became a PBS show that aired all over the world. And she also had an active role working on this show. And this is what I was talking about in the beginning. If I had known that she existed and that she had written this show, I would have been obsessed with her because I was obsessed with this show. Excuse me? You've Um, altered my childhood. Yes. This show apparently only ran for like two years which doesn't make sense because in my mind, it plays such a bigger role in my brain, but it was a really formative show for me. My parents would tell you that's where my problems come from. I'm doing air quotes, but no, I just think it's a really, it was a really good show about family and sibling relationships. And it came out right when I was becoming a big sister. And so seeing Sagwa, the cat character, have this relationship with her siblings and like that was just, oh, I just loved that show. And I loved, I loved the characters in it. And it just, also, I only had PBS, so the options at that point were limited. But apparently, it was made in Canada, also, which is super interesting. Like the, the animation, a lot of PBS shows are animated in Canada. I'll look I it I used to get the
0: white cat, the like the uh, Saguas sidekick, or you know, okay, the little the sister. Cat, the little sister. I used to thought that was Marie from the Aristocrats, <laughs> or like the the little one. I don't know why, but that, do you, that's what I thought. Do you
1: know what the name Sagwa means? What is it? No. It means silly melon head. I love it. And her siblings are all named after different melons. Her brother, um, older brother Dongwa is named winter melon. And then her little sister Shigua, the white one, she's named watermelon. So like, and her name, it, it literally means like silly melon, but it means fool, like idiot. But right. not in a derogatory way. Like, oh, you fool. Um, like in an affectionate way. Yeah. Dumbass affectionate. Yeah. Like, you, <laughs> you know, like goose. Like dumbass affectionate. Yeah. Yeah. You silly goose. You silly goose. But yeah, it's interesting because all I never noticed, um, but all the names like they, they mean things. So yeah, I just really love that show. I love the bat and the grandpa. Yeah. I love that show. That is all. So anyway, in the past few decades, Lyme disease has made it difficult for Amy to write. But in 2013 and 2017, she published new books that were really well-received, and she has also worked to advocate for Lyme disease detection and research, so she kind of spreads the word about what Lyme disease is and how people can help. And today, her and her husband live in California with their two Yorkies. She remains an inspiration in the Asian American community and is admired for her contributions to Asian American representation in media. Like some people claim that like things like Crazy Rich Asians wouldn't exist without the Joy Luck Club. So it's kind of like she's she started the movement for Asian American representation. And her efforts to share immigrant stories have really impacted the way that other stories get shared in America. So We love her. And also I just saw on YouTube an ad today. She is doing a masterclass. What's the masterclass though? How to write fiction. I'll end the story with a quote. I like to do that. And I really think this one sums up who she is as a creator. She says, I think that's why I'm a storyteller. I take all these disparate events and connect them. I have to make them seem inevitable and yet surprising and plausible. That's what I think life is like too. I have the luxury to do exactly what it is we all need time to do, think about the mystery of life. And because Amy has spent her life covering the stories of Asian Americans and immigrant communities, I would like to take a minute to talk about some current issues affecting her community. And as a warning, what I'm about to say references race-based violence. So if you need to skip ahead, just click to after the ad break and listen to Haley's story. So hate crimes motivated by racism against Asian Americans are not a new occurrence, but they are occurring at an alarming rate. It's drastically been increased in the United States. Cases of racially motivated crime against Asian Americans and their businesses increased 150% from 2019 to 2020. In New York City, specifically, hate crimes against Asian Americans rose a staggering 833% from 2019 to 2020, and Asian American advocates and orga- organizations attribute this rise in hate crime to the race-based rhetoric that blames the Asian community for the COVID-19 pandemic. In particular, Donald Trump's use of racist language to talk about the virus has led many Americans to blame Asian and Asian American communities for the impact of the virus. In early summer 2020, the World Health Organization urged Trump and other officials in the U.S. to stop perpetuating the use of harmful language related to the virus. The WHO emphasized that global mutual respect was essential to fighting a global pandemic and crisis together. Asian Americans and their allies have taken to the streets and to social media to spread information that is largely being ignored by mainstream media. I have included some resources in my sources and further learning that I hope can help you gain a better understanding of what is going on. I put them in a category that's called resources so that you can kind of know which separate thing that is from my sources for my research this week. I also included some resources about the model minority myth and the harm that that can cause as I feel it's an important thing to understand that a lot of people ignore. They think like, oh, well, that's not like a harmful thing, but it actually really is. So it's definitely something to read up on. And finally, I included some resources such as a guide developed by the Massachusetts Asian American Commission, which provides resources for bystander intervention, like what should you do if you see something like this happening, and resources for reporting hate crimes after they happen. And the resources are translated into many Asian languages, including Cantonese, Mandarin, Korean, Japanese, Tagalog and like five other ones, (laughs) so there's lots of resources. So like if your parents or grandparents don't speak English, but you want them to be able to access this information, send it their way. If you would like to provide monetary assistance for those working to stop these hate crimes, you can donate to Asian Americans Advancing Justice or the Asian Pacific Policy and Planning Council, both of which I provided links to in my resources. And uh, one immediate action you can take is supporting an Asian owned business in your community. Local Asian-owned businesses have been hit particularly hard financially by the bias and hate that's being spread with the myths about the virus. So, you know, if you know a local Asian business, go support them.
2: This was, obviously was a couple months ago now, but I made a point for my Christmas Chinese food feast. Obviously, the food of my people, traditional food of my people on Christmas is Chinese food. And I Mm -hmm. made certain to use to do... um, I did take. Out, I didn't do takeout. I did delivery from a local Asian-owned business. Guess what? We're on Patreon. Tiers start at just $1 a month. And we have three of them. Become a brilliant backer for $1. Find out early about new merch and ticketed events and get access to our monthly newsletter. Support our show by becoming a
1: confident contributor for $4 a month. In addition to the benefits from the previous tier, you get access to our Discord community and one bonus episode every Sunday.
0: Or lastly, prove that you love us the most by becoming a sensational super fan for $7. In addition to the benefits from the previous tiers, get access to a monthly interactive live stream with one of us and get the power to decide future
2: Lady History content by voting. Join our community and help us keep the show running at patreon.com slash ladyhistorypod.
1: woo we did it.
0: Can y'all guess who I'm going to tell a tale if I give you the hint? We talked about her on the episode of Erin. Extra points if you can tell me her first nom de plume. So, Alana, you really just
2: read my mind there with my question. Oh, I totally didn't even mean to. I mean, I can't tell you her nom de plume because I don't know. But also, we have a spreadsheet so that we don't overlap ladies. So I know who you were talking about. <laughs> um, I right, do Well, space. you just
0: ruined the magic for our listeners, but that's okay.
2: <laughs> is it? Is it uh, uh, Louisa my Alcott?
0: Like, yeah, but I really wish I had, like, another lady up my ass and I could just be like, hello here (laughs) well please tell your story do do you know her nom de plume first nom de plume well it was flora fairfield and another one was a.m bernard i'm now gonna look all over ebay for those type of books so louisa may alcott Writer of relatable characters, style that has greeted and impacted American literature, as well as introducing readers to strong female heroines as the National Women's History Museum describes her. And yes, I do, too. So, yes, I want to talk about Little Women. Hold Your Horses, The Caboose, Everything, because I want to tell you a little bit about how she was a union nurse in Washington, D.C., Alana's eyes, Lexi's eyes, they're watching me, so I'm going to keep going on this.
2: Local gal, we love to see it. (laughs) I mean, low-key, but like, local gal.
0: She was working at Georgetown's Union Hotel Hospital from December 2nd, 1862 to January 21st, 1863. Orienting ourselves on this timeline we call history, this was during the Civil War, and these nurses, including Louisa, worked in overcrowded hospitals very close or exactly on the battlefield so she was in the thick of things and while she was working she was writing so i imagine her like nursing it up with her left hand and like writing with the other or like vice versa depending on if she was a lefty or a righty and i checked i tried to see if she was a lefty or righty and i couldn't like find it from like a credible source i digress she wrote about what she was experiencing in her journal and in letters that she would send to her family and yes we have a lot of that stuff still yippee so then she took what she wrote and adapted it slightly to publish her second book Hospital Sketches this was very typical of Louisa's writing method as we see for Little Women taking little stories experiences and adapting it to a larger story with somewhat fictionalized characters unlike typical Louisa or typical world in that sense it was customary to publish writings of these so based on like experiences of the civil war after the war. And it was noted that many other civil war nurses waited till after the war to publish what they wrote. Louisa said, screw it and published before the war was over. So that's kind of like, could I use the word meta here? I'm going to use the word meta. Um, It's journalism. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Uh, It was journalism. You are correct, Lexi. This actually started the trend for others like Amanda Atkin, and the National Library of Medicine has copies of both their books to just start producing and publishing exactly what they were thinking and experiencing right off the bat, rather than waiting. Also, that made me think of like how many writers died before they could publish if the kind of the typical way of writing was to hold on to stuff when they were on the battlefields or like very close. Her term was cut short after she got typhoid pneumonia, and during her treatment of calomel, which was standard u- and used as, like, medicine component through the 19th century, she got mercury poisoning and had some lasting symptoms for the rest of her life. Like, some of these symptoms included vertigo and random hallucinations. So I'm wondering, like, if on any of these hallucinations were, like, characters in later books. Like, if she, like, saw this and was like, I'm going to write this down now. And to help with these symptoms, she took opium. That's A lot of where space. the writing yeah. came
1: from. I'm just kidding.
0: Like, who knows? There's so many authors and, and like other artists being like, drugs helped me. There are at least eight different movie adaptations within the most like recent being the 2019 Greta Gerwig. I almost said Greta Thunberg, Greta Gerwig. I would have watched that version too. So hopefully you've seen at least something if you haven't read the book because obviously there will be spoilers this book also came out years and years and years ago so if someone says this is a spoiler whoopsie popsy. she actually wasn't super stoked to be writing this book at all because she was tasked to write a book about girls and she thought oh geez I'm a tomboy what am I going to be even writing about because at the time the girls like what Joe described, were meant to grow up, get married and have a bunch of bees, And that's just not what she wanted. Hence, you see the Joe Louisa marrying image. And like in like the book and the movies, these were called fairy stories. You see my quotations. And fixed on how now dated these tropes were on like what girls should be doing and like what society expected of them. We kind of see them as like we see like Louisa's book even as fairy stories. There are a lot, there are a lot of essays about little women and just like the different tropes mirrored to modern day females and women. Go check it out. And her father actually went to the publishers, or at least like one of the the one of the publishers at the time and told them that she could write these types of stories because her father really wanted them to publish his manuscript about philosophy and the publisher was like I will publish your manuscript if you get your daughter to write a novel for girls about non-fairy like stories so like the publisher kind of did like the 180 but I just think it's interesting that the father was just like using Louisa as kind of like a pawn in his little chess game to get his stuff published, but also recognize that like she was such a good writer that like they had to do like a double deal, like a two for one. See this dynamic of the fairy story and the tomboy-esque played between Joe and the relationship with her sisters, Meg and Amy, but mainly Joe struggling to find her place because she didn't want their traditional Marry and have children, side note, Louisa never married or held children of her own, but adopted her niece when her sister died and raised her. So that wasn't included in Little Women per se, at least where the book stops and the movies stop. So it could have happened in Louisa's mind, but she never wrote it down. But that's where we see the bulk of those relationships and those dynamics come out for Little Women and kind of what made it a success somewhat in the 1800s when it was published but definitely now so when louisa went to writing and publishing about growing up with her with these three sisters she published part one of little women in 1868 and then the second part in 1869 both huge successes what i mean by successes they were successes for the time but like numbers because even so like there were so many people like on the blogosphere being like Little Women is way more popular now and like we come to appreciate it. And it's like, I don't think you understand like what a big success is for the 1800s versus today. Like you can't- I don't
1: think you understand how many people were illiterate. (laughs)
0: Literally, (laughs) exactly. And also with these successes coming out in 1869, she had sequels like Little Men in 1871, Joe's Boys in 1886, they had less hype
2: you love to see a story about women doing better than a story about men. You love to see it. That was
0: like- Little men who my next joke-
2: I do her. Right? Like, we don't know why
0: they
1: weren't as successful,
0: but like, we know why. If you are intrigued and want to read, of course, I have found a copy of Little Women on Project Gutenberg, which is, of course, in the show notes. So you have it. I have the hundred- Oh, it's all the way over there in my bookshelf. The 150th anniversary, because that happened like last year, 2019. That's when it happened. It's a lovely book cover. I love those type of book covers. Also just the Little Women book covers, the variations of them are gorgeous. But if you just want a free copy to read on whatever you have, Project Gutenberg is there for you. And that slips into Also my show notes. So a little change in how my sources are going. I've now added a section for museum collections or online entries that are not within like the public domain. So we won't be posting them on social media, but but I still think they're interested and like
1: worth a view. Appreciate that.
2: Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard, and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that keeps so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea, yet never an extremity it asked a crumb of me. Emily Elizabeth Dickinson was born December 10th, 1830, a Sagittarius, just like Lexi, in Amherst, Massachusetts. Also, since we were talking about like kids shows earlier in the episode um Emily Elizabeth is the name of the girl in Clifford the Big Red Dog
1: um also you both have Massachusetts ladies oh yeah
2: yes we're Aaron signaling uh, I'm big
1: time Aaron signaling I'm like Aaron Aaron Aaron
0: Aaron so Emily Elizabeth from Clifford I chose my middle name as Elizabeth because of her and then this girl in my class who would never use her full
2: name. And I thought that was ridiculous. So I was like, I'll take it. Okay, well, that's incredible. Uh, yeah, so I looked it up uh, when I was like, Emily Elizabeth, isn't that the girl from Clifford the Big Red Dog? I wonder if, it's, if she's named after Emily Dickinson. She's not named after Emily Dickinson. She's named after the creator's daughter or something. But maybe the creator's daughter is named after Emily Dickinson. Anyways. I wouldn't put it past you to name... A creature Emily Elizabeth out of I wanted my friend Kay who I've mentioned on the podcast before in our goddesses episode got a kitten and I really wanted her to name the kitten emuel and uh kittenson I really wanted that to be the cat's name but I did not win that fight which is fine it's not my cat I'm a little salty though anyways Emily had an older brother Austin who will come into the story later and a younger sister Lavinia who will not Emily would live her entire life in what she called her father's house, and the people of Amherst referred to her as the capital M myth. She did have a formal education. She attended uh, Mount Holyoke female seminary. Now it's like a university or a college. My friend goes there. It's a women's college. It's a women's college, yeah, but at the time it was just called a female seminary for a year, but after that she lived with her parents for the rest of their lives and then in that house for the rest of hers. There are a lot of interesting facts about her, Uh, like she was probably epileptic and she was very interested in science, but I want to focus on her poetry and her queerness. Her poems focus uh, a lot about death and science and depression. She also has several poems about Susan Gilbert Dickinson, whom I will get to in a sec. But what can I say? I love mentally ill queer women. I don't know why. It's not like we have that much in common or anything. I'm obviously being sarcastic, but I have gotten much more into the pointing out when I'm being sarcastic since I learned about tone indicators.
1: Just get a shirt or a sticker that says like slash S and just put it on when you slash S. But what is that is helpful. S?
2: Slash S means like what was before this is sarcastic. There are a bunch of like, they're called tone indicators that people use in text now to indicate like when you're being sarcastic or when you're just kidding or when you're being genuine or when you mean it in like a, serious way or you mean it there's one that's like don't take this dirty there is of course the john Mullaney joke where he says that he thinks emily dickinson was a lesbian and i know i have said before that assigning sexualities to people of the past is tricky when they weren't officially out but listen heterosexual women do not write about other women the way emily dickinson wrote about susan gilbert and Emily's most recent biographer also says that, and she spent way more time researching Emily than I have, so you can take her word for it, too. But Susan did marry Emily's brother, Austin, and they lived across the street from each other, and it is totally possible that Susan only married Austin to be close to Emily because they were, like, gal pals for a while before that, Yeah. Uh, but mm-hmm, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, gal pals, gal Head cannon. Pals. Oh, Totally. But also, Susan was poor, and the Dickinsons were not, so this may have just been like a win-win for Susan. Emily actually spent most of her writing career in anonymity, only publishing a few poems during her lifetime, and most of those anonymously. But when she died in 1886, at the age of 55, all I can find about her cause of death is just illness. uh, Her family found almost 1,800 poems. Her Amherst home is now the Emily Dickinson Museum, and I know I say this a lot, but lady history field trip I don't know if we if they have like a theater or anything but we could we should do a live show at the Emily Dickinson Museum we don't need a theater we need a tent we do need a tent I agree and some chairs I bet they do have that their sources on Emily are incredible and it's a great website it's really easy to navigate so if you want more info I definitely recommend them if they I really don't want to live in Massachusetts sorry Aaron, but like if I were to go live in Massachusetts I would want to work there Okay. Now I have to talk about Dickinson. I have to, I couldn't talk about Emily Dickinson and not talk about this show. First of all, it is written by Elena Smith, which is almost my name. And uh, in fact, people mispronounce my name to Elena all the time. So obviously I am already biased because I don't, I feel like some people have a vendetta against people with their own names but like when I see someone whose name is Alana or Elena or like whatever I'm like <gasps> it's like the same hat meme that's how I feel also it is exactly my aesthetic because it's people in like 19th century costumes and with that kind of setting but the characters all talk modern like Austin will ride up on a horse to Emily and be like what's up sis and she'll respond just chillin bro and I am I'm moving. so quiet. it's Hamilton <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's Hamilton, but better because it's so it's it's the great. Yeah, (laughs) kind of. Uh, And I'm living for it. And it's so gay, but written by a woman. So it's not like creepy. I talked more about it in the March Patreon newsletter. So go sign up for that, maybe. That's my story. I love ending with a plug. (laughs) You
1: can find this podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Lady History Pod. Our show notes and a transcript of this episode will be on LadyHistoryPod.com. If you like the show, leave us a review or tell your friends. And if you don't like the show, keep it to yourself.
2: Our logo is by Alexia Ibarra. You can find her on Twitter and Instagram at Lexi Draws. Our theme music is by me, GarageBand, and Amelia Earhart. Lexi is doing the editing. You will not see us, and we will not see you, but you will hear us next time on Lady History.
0: on lady history we're talking about music oh boy (laughs) that's three years of course coming right at you maybe more i did
2: chorus too and i couldn't have done that
0: four years of jesus
2: christ
0: i'm also having all the allergies so that was just beautiful
2: that was incredible good job everybody lexi are you good to stop recording you're to stop recording This week
0: on Patreon, we're playing uh, a new coming soon game with Sierra from Feline Games. It was a ton of fun to make. And Lexi,
1: what's the Insta? You can follow Feline Games on feline.games and you can check out the episode on our Patreon by becoming a $4 or $7 member. Highly recommend, 10 out of 10. Totally worth it. It was great
2: fun. Absolutely worth it. That
1: episode alone is worth paying for a whole month.
2: Yes. Oh, absolutely.
1: It comes out yes. Saturday. So if you're listening to this on the day this comes drops. out Sunday. Sunday. I'm sorry. It comes out Sunday. <laughs> we're, we're professionals.
2: We are professional podcasters.
1: Yes.